Howdy and welcome to the show. I'm Miles Cooper. Cooper's Code focuses on legal issues and notable practitioners, distilling wisdom so we all achieve the best results for our clients. Welcome to part one of what is a wonderful two-part interview with today's guest, Christopher J. Beeman. Chris is a nationally renowned trial lawyer at Clapp, Moroni, Lucinich, Beeman, and Shelley. Having been on the other side of the V from Chris on a few cases, I can say he's the type of lawyer one says great and crap in equal parts when he shows up in a case. Great because he's friendly, professional, knows what to fight over and what not to, and his entire team is a pleasure to work with. Crap for all, almost all the same reasons. He's an effective advocate whose intelligence, charm, and team management combine to make him a devastating opponent. Crap is the opposite of his work product, although through his work, he's developed a granular understanding of chicken feces, which I suspect we may touch on today. Unafraid of trial, with a never-let-them-see-me-sweat approach, he's collected an impressive record of defense verdicts, having tried over 100 cases to verdict. He's been inducted into the big four invitation-only prestigious organizations, the American Board of Trial Advocates, known as ABOTA, the International Academy of Trial Lawyers, the American College of Trial Lawyers, and the International Society of Barristers. Chris recently finished serving as the national president of the Abota Foundation. He's also received the Donnie Bailey Award for Civility, Professionalism, and Integrity, as well as the Distinguished Defense Trial Lawyer of the Year Award from the San Francisco Trial Lawyers Association. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Miles. Good to be here. And I want to say that uh, you have a voice for radio or podcasts. I have a face for radio, so this is perfect. You steal my line with the face for radio piece. <laughs> I want to start with a little bit of background in terms of where you grew up and what drew you into the law in the first place. I thought you might ask that one. I'm from Chicago. I grew up on the west side of Chicago, a family of seven kids, Irish Catholic. I'm the one in the middle. I'm number four of seven. My dad was a paper salesman. My parents are both still alive and live in Indiana now. And I went to high school at a place called Fenwick High School. It's a Chicago Catholic League school. And we're going to talk about how I got into law and that kind of starts there because I played a lot of sports growing up. When I was a kid, I was a recreational swimmer and did all the other stuff. Soccer was not really happening in the Midwest, but baseball and basketball and track and all that stuff was. So I started playing sports when I was young and in high school, I played on a really good basketball team, not because of me, but because of my teammates. We had a very good team, played against a lot of NBA players in high school. And I mentioned that because one of the draws that I have to the law is that I really like competition a lot. And it started when I was young, probably when I was on a swimming blocks, you know, as a six-year-old. I went to Notre Dame for undergraduate. My sport there was mostly ultimate frisbee and things that would not be considered sports other than maybe 12-ounce curls. And then I, I moved to California and went to Santa Clara University for law school, got out of there in the mid-80s. So... The way I got into law really was I worked at a really prestigious firm, Kirkland and Ellis, when I was in college as a runner in the mailroom. So it really had nothing to do with the law, but it did give me a really interesting perspective on what lawyers seem to do. And this was obviously many years ago. And I became really interested in that. So a runner, basically I was, would go somewhere in the loop in downtown Chicago and deliver stuff. So I was not doing legal research. I was not doing anything that had to do with the law itself, but it did expose me to a profession that seemed to be one that would be interesting because there was a degree of competition. There was also, you know, requirements that you'd be on a team of a sort. And those are things that really appealed to me and still do. I kind of fell into it. And my strategy, which I don't necessarily recommend to others, was that I thought 
to get into a good law school, it would be important that I have a good grade point average. I'm not sure that's even true, but I thought that was true. So I am a sociology major, which was fascinating, but not particularly relevant to anything other than having a good grade point average. And I came out here to California in the early 80s, not knowing whether I would practice here, but I wanted to live in California after all the Midwest winters and started in Santa Clara in 82. And the reason I came to West besides the weather was that I was dating a young woman who lured me out here. So I kind of, we broke up after about a month, I think. That might be too personal, but what the heck. So I kind of came out here for uh, the wrong reasons, but it turned out to be a really great decision. Going back a little bit, how did you find yourself with the job as a runner at Kirkland Nellis? The fix was in there. My dad was friends with Bill Roeder. My dad's name is Dick Beeman. And Bill Roeder was, I think he was an estate planner, so it had nothing to do with what you and I do. It was a great intro, and it really was fortuitous because I actually did work in some other jobs growing up, and I could have done something totally different that summer. I think the summer before I had worked as a roofer, and then the next year, I think I didn't like being a roofer, and I got a different job. I think the roofer paid more money, though. Or, you know, that was like a roofer's assistant or something. Did the runner job it just so happened to be at a law firm and this was not something where you're like, hey, you know, I might want to be interested in the law. Maybe I'd get some exposure to what a firm is like. It was not accidental. It was something that I was curious about anyway. So it was purposeful, but also just kind of lucky that I was able to do that. And it's funny, I can't really paint this picture because it's before any tech, you know, you couldn't email or fax or anything. It's way before cell phones, which it sounds like I'm really old right now. And I like to consider myself immature, but that's just a reality. So I would be delivering envelopes with briefs in it. And it was really fun. I mean, Chicago was a beautiful city. I love going there at certain times of year and try to go back there as much as I can still. And the summer is fantastic there. So, and the building that I worked in was adjacent to Grant Park. So it was a great place to go at lunchtime and just, you know, see the sights. So I really, really enjoyed that. I can't remember what firm it was, but Marianne had a similar job here in San Francisco as kind of her first introduction. It was a big firm, right? Sometimes you just fall into things, right? And speaking of falling into things, I know we're going to talk about plaintiffs versus defense work, and I look forward to that. One thing I wanted to mention about that is this is kind of family-oriented. I have a brother, Tim, who's about a year, 15 months older than me. We're considered Irish twins, technically. And he lives in Pacifica. And when we were growing up, we we're pretty much the same size. And my mother came home from Sears Roebuck one time in the summer, and she had two sets of pajamas. And... My brother got first choice because we were going to, you know, we're each going to get one. And he chose the Chicago Bears Gale Sayers pajamas. And so I had the second choice and it wasn't a choice. I just got whatever was left. And that was the Green Bay Packers Bart Starr number 15 pajamas, which were really cool. And I became literally a lifelong Green Bay Packer fan at that time. And it's a little bit like, you know, where you're going to be a plaintiff's lawyer or a defense lawyer. It's like, well, which one do I start with? So I kind of fell into the Green Bay Packers and also being a defense lawyer, just kind of by accident. That's a great analogy in terms of how one kind of finds a path and goes down that. In that regard, as I understand it, you've been at the same firm your entire career. Does that make me smart or stupid, Miles? Well, given where your career has taken you, I would say probably smart rather than stupid. What do you think? <laughs> I question that. <laughs> I have been the same firm. Club Maroney's been very good to me. I started in Palo Alto. I think I was the 11th lawyer that they ever hired. I mean, 11th lawyer to join the firm that was started by five 
defense practitioners that had practiced in Redwood City in a small firm. And I started in the mid-80s right out of law school. And honestly, the reason I went there is I lived with some guys right off of Santa Clara campus in a house on Elviso Street across from the fire department. And we applied everywhere. We had a kind of a wall of shame in the entryway to our, it was an apartment. And we had rejection letters from like <laughs> literally dozens, if not more firms that said, you know, no thanks. So the firms that we did interview with and that I interviewed with, it boiled down to there were jobs in the defense market. And so I had an offer in Oakland and I had an offer in Palo Alto and I lived in Santa Clara at that time. So Palo Alto was closer. And Palo Alto is also a really cool place to work that. It was way before the high tech stuff and way before University Avenue was regentrified. So I took a job there and really enjoyed working in downtown Palo Alto at a small firm. I mean, it was, you know, 10 people. So it was a pretty small defense firm, 10 people, but anyway, small. And, you know, over the years, we've expanded and moved to different locations and have a couple of offices now. One is in San Mateo and I practice out of our Pleasanton office in the East Bay. And that's kind of a whole other story about how I got there. But, you know, there's been opportunities over time to go to a different practice or do something else besides defense or, and, you know, there still are, but staying at the same place has really given us, my family, a lot of stability. And it's also, you know, where I was the young buck a long time ago, now I'm second most senior at the firm. So you're second most senior at the firm. Yes. And because I kind of like following up on threads before I forget them, you did end up going from the Palo Alto office to an East Bay office at some point. Do you mind going into that a little bit about how that developed? No, happy to talk about that. But first I should tell you that just because the the sequence was kind of interesting. Yeah. We worked basically in a neighborhood. It was a small building. It was really, you know, you walk down the street at lunchtime, there's like different sandwich shops. It was really a fun place to work. Do you recall the, the streets? Yeah. It was at Cowper and Hamilton. Okay. It's right now there's a pretty big hotel across the street. The name escapes me, but there's a great restaurant. But it was very close proximity to University Avenue. It was really a great place to work. That became expensive. In fact, during the tech boom, I think that would have been in the late 80s. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. The cost of leasing an office there was more expensive than it was on Wall Street. It was super expensive. And our model, our firm model, could not sustain paying that kind of a lease payment. So we moved to Menlo Park which was a little more reasonable. And then I moved to Menlo Park in an office complex. So it was kind of a really different vibe than downtown Palo Alto. Now there's tons of, that's off of Marsh Road and 101. There's a bunch of law firms there now that weren't there when we were there. So anyway, we then lost that lease. And right at about that time, lost the lease because the tech was just blowing up. And it, it was very difficult for us to find a new landing spot. The business part of this was that we had decided the East Bay would be a good place to open an office. And I think I might've been smart enough to say, I'm not ready to do that because we were living in Sunnyvale and my family was growing. We waited a year to see if that took root, the VFs took root. And then uh, we moved from Sunnyvale to Danville because you could get more house in Danville. Our house was, our family was growing. So going to ask how many kids and about what age that was going on? I can tell you exactly, both things. Three kids. Our oldest daughter, Carrie, who I mentioned before we started, is now pregnant, which is very exciting. She's 35. Christy is 32. She lives here in the city and uh, works for a startup company and does good things for the planet. And Connor is 31. And when he was in the womb, 
we said, we need another bedroom and we can't afford it on the salary that I make as an insurance defense lawyer. So we moved to Danville for the purpose really of getting another bedroom. It worked out great. So that was 31 years ago. So it was a really good move. The other thing is it's closer to Tahoe and Tahoe is a great destination that we like to enjoy. And I was a little leery of moving to the East Bay, honestly, because I'd been lived on the peninsula ever since I moved out here. And there was a little bit of hesitation, but it's really worked out well. It's been a really good move for the practice because we that office is thriving and still is. You know, I used to drive past jack-in-the-boxes and car dealerships and all that stuff when I was going from Sunnyvale to Palo Alto. And now I really drive past cows and pastures and a lot of green hills, except during the summer when it's brown. It's also closer to Mount Diablo because you're also a cyclist. We do love Mount Diablo. It's a great resource. So lucky to live there. It was particularly great, Miles. I think you know that during the pandemic, they closed the mountain to uh, auto traffic. And I'd love to talk to you about this a little bit, but a lot of people are very paranoid about riding bikes in the city streets, understandably. I mean, that's the way you make a great living. And and we need people like you to protect the cyclists for sure. I've never really had a paranoia about that. And I should knock on wood because maybe I should have a paranoia. But ride Diablo, whether there's auto traffic or not. But it was really great when there was no cars on that mountain for, it was at least nine months. And we all remember what was going on then. You could bike, you know, you could play golf if you stayed away from people. There wasn't a lot of other stuff you could do during the shutdown, but that was a real coup. I really loved doing that for sure. And a follow-up on the bike and traffic piece, I prefer to be away from cars. I like riding side by side. I like having the conversational tone that not being near cars allows without worrying that you're taking up too much lane space or getting honked at. I also find from a city versus rural driving, riding perspective, far more of our horrible cases out of the city than within the city. In Within the city, most people are going at slower speeds and they just, you don't have as dramatic an impact. And so the fatalities, the catastrophic events, those tend to come in, you know, Marin, Contra Costa, further out, unfortunately. Truckee. Truckee, yes. <laughs> And I'm yes. smiling because we had a case that was a catastrophic injury case yeah. of a cyclist coming into the town of Truckee. I think that just concluded about a year ago. You did a great job for your client in that case. Likewise. Uh, much to my chagrin. Uh, but that's clearly more of a rural than an urban road, that's for sure. But yeah. I've also had some really interesting bike cases in remote places. Are there any that stand out in terms of cases and how you were able to handle it. Yes, for sure. And we're going to talk about what kind of cases you like and what kind I like. And I like any case that has to do with any kind of recreational or sporting event if I can. And I've had some really interesting cases. The bike cases, I try to grab every bike case that comes in our office intentionally. And I think people send me bike cases like they do to you because of your expertise and interest. It's fun to work on files that you enjoy, the meat of the files, what it's about, especially with your experience with GPSs and braking and all kinds of things that are particular to cycling that somebody else who doesn't cycle just wouldn't know. It's good to have that experience. But I think the most interesting bike case that I had, I took over from somebody else who had worked it up. And it was a case that involved a competitive racer. As I've done lots and lots of centuries where it's basically a ride. You know, you're not racing I'm in some really great places, including the death ride. I forgot to mention that. That's my bragging point. I did the death you, ride. You did the death ride. I did the, that's, that's impressive. Is, I survived. Yeah. So you can survive the death ride. Yeah. 
Although well, that doesn't make any sense. That's five passes, right? Five passes is like 15,000 elevation and like 130 miles or something. Wow. There's quite a few lawyers out there on the road. I, but I was going to tell a short story. This was on a competitive racer. Competitive racer. Okay. And it was outside of Yosemite. I always forget the name of the little town. Mariposa? Mariposa. Thank you. It was in Mariposa. And the short story of the case was it was a U.S. cycling sanctioned race. And there were sag wagons on the course. And there was one of the cyclists who was relatively new racer. I was a, a woman, I think she was about 50. She had a couple of kids. She might've been younger than that. And she, you know, there's different classes. I've never been in a race before, but I learned a lot during this case about it. And she was on the course, which was in a very remote, very rural open course, right? Open course, meaning there's traffic on the course and you have to stop for the stop signs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think it was like a 20 mile course or something like that. She was coming down a descent and the, a sag wagon had parked along the right shoulder to help another cyclist who had a flat. And the pack that she was in, the decedent, because she got killed, it kind of came down a slope and around a corner and the van was not all the way off the road. And so pretty much everybody, in fact, the entire pack, except for the rider who unfortunately hit the back of the van, just scooted around into the other lane and went around it. Unfortunately, the family of the cyclist became the plaintiffs, hit the back of the van and was killed. Very tragic and something you can really relate to and, you know, take a lesson from downhill. We had the GPS, we had all the information about her speed and she was going, I think she was going in the thirties. So she had picked up some good momentum. It was pretty early in the race. I had the race organizer, which is like one level down from the race promoter because the promoter was U.S. cycling. Okay. And then I had the organizer who was a really cool guy. I think he was in Sacramento. I think that, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Sacramento. And that's where his business was. The Sagwagon guy was a volunteer that volunteered for the organizer. So there was an agency between this guy. And I have to tell you just because it was funny. I went up to, you know, when I got the case, I didn't really know much about it. I wanted to go visit the site. I brought my bike naturally. And when I did that, I had never met the Sagwagon driver. I met him at some cafe in Mariposa and I'm sitting there like having a sandwich and I'm kind of waiting for him to show up and I'm looking, I was like, I wonder who it is. And this van shows up and this guy that looks like the character Yosemite Sam, you know, big, bushy, beard, long hair, scraggly looking guy, gray hair. And I go, is, that can't be my client. <laughs> and he, it was, he came over, he was a great guy. I think the jury would have loved him. We mocked the case, but the case settled. But I'll, I, just a really quick spin is the race organizer, U.S. Cycling, they got out on motion for summary judgment because there was an express waiver signed. We tried to, and that went up on appeal. And then I got in afterwards because it didn't, the organizer did not get out. Did, was the organizer not covered by the scope of the waiver? Yes. And there was the court determined that the conduct of the driver of the sag wagon increased the risk of injury in the event. So that express waiver didn't, get us out and the gross negligence. It was only a gross negligence case. Okay. It became a gross negligence case, which is good for the defense. I mean, it's easier to fight that certainly than just a straight negligence case. And the mock trial was super interesting. And I will say that if I didn't say this, we videotaped because my client, the driver deposition had been taken, but not videotaped. But we did this with Cogent, who I know is a mutual. We both really like that jury service that provides all kinds of 
things like trial tech and mock trials. And I don't know, I guess that's a plug for him. But I was just talking to Andrew Walker, so I figured, what the heck. We did a mock, so we kind of interviewed my client, who I was not, who I was shocked what he looked like. And the jury loved him. I mean, the mock jury said he was totally believable. They felt really sorry for him. He made a mistake, should have been stopped somewhere else was basically the argument or been all the way off the road, although that wasn't physically possible because of the gutter alongside the road. But that case did not get tried. It got settled in mediation. It took like a lot of sessions. But the other thing I have to say, just because it was so bizarre, when I got the case, I mentioned I went out to the site. So I met my client. We kind of looked around. He left. I had a whole team of experts out there. Morgan Smith was there droning, you know, getting the shot because there's a lot of rolling hills and it was kind of an interesting course. And I was out there and there's an engineer and there's a human factors expert. We were working it up. And we were there for 20 minutes or a half hour. And it's very rural. So there were some people walking along the side of the road. And I thought that must be some neighbors, you know, wanting to know who these people are because they're ranches. So they're like far apart from each other than the residences. So anyway, I walk over to them and said, oh, you know what? we're out here. We introduced myself and they said, why are you here? And I go, well, we're, we were involved in a case where the, unfortunately there was an accident out here. It turned out it was the plaintiff's lawyer, a guy from Southern California and his investigator. And I thought to myself, are they listening to my phones? I wow. Mean, what are the what are, odds of yeah. that? Yeah. Had you not met the lawyer before? No. Cause he subbed in to try the case too. Uh, so they both flew in, you know, parachuted people in. It was actually very comical. I was like, yeah. you, you have to be kidding me. Are you listening to my phones. So it's a good way to get off on the right foot with them because neither of us could believe that we ran into each other at this very remote location. It happened to be there at the same time on the same day. It was not a site inspection. It was a, let's go check things out. And we bumped into them. That's fascinating. It was too much. I'm imagining the territory. I've got deep roots in that area. So my grandparents retired to Mid Pines, which is a tiny town outside of the tiny town of Mariposa. So know that area. Do you find that something that you try and do in your cases in terms of knowing the terrain? There's the line about the map is not the terrain and actually being out there and seeing what the situation is like. I cannot overemphasize how important it is to do that. Yesterday, I was in Santa Barbara defending a deposition of my client. He lives in Hope Ranch, which is a really beautiful right on the bluffs. It's a dog mauling case, which I thought I had outgrown, but apparently when there's punitive damages and horrible injuries, I have not outgrown those. And I could never have understood the scene without going out there. And I mean, that's pretty obvious, but this had to do with the whole setup of his property. You know, that applies to every kind of case. I mean, bike cases for sure. And I'm thinking of another one right now here in the city that was against the Veen firm. I think Annie Wu had that one. And it was a cyclist who was coming from Fort Mason down that really steep hill right toward aquatic park okay and her brakes failed on the bike so i had the distributor or manufacturer of the bike i think in that one i know this case yeah it was very interesting i mean and if unless you go out there yeah what do you know about it what do you remember did you have experts from exponent on this case one of the sides did i had a really great expert in that case and you tell me if you want to use him sometime he was a metallurgist he's a bike freak like you are i mean his name is dave mitchell i believe he's from north carolina i think I'll have to stick that one away. I know one of the experts in the case and just learned a little bit about it. Yeah, so. you, and I think that case, there was two defendants and I think Exponent might have been the other defendants. Was this a expert. bike through a hotel? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. I think yeah. it was the uh, Fairmount. Yeah. Yeah. Small world. You mentioned doing mock trials. 
And I wanted to follow up a little bit on that because I know that some people do them, some people don't. Are these things that you do in every case? No, definitely not. They can be very expensive. I just did one in San Diego about three weeks ago. It was a two-day mock, significant brain injury case with brain matter outside the skull. So it was all about liability. I think it cost $135,000. So you got to pick the right case. And I tell my clients, if it's an eight-figure case, you need to do a mock. And you can do them for cases not of that size, but I think that's kind of, for me, the bright line. So some follow-up questions as far as that is concerned. It sounds like you do them in person. It depends. And obviously that has evolved since we've come out of the pandemic. I find the in-person mocks much more useful. And there's different layers of a mock trial that you can do. We've done the survey type um, on some cases, which I don't think those are particularly helpful. That's literally a situation where questions are said. Now there's a fact pattern that's given to a panel of people. Those are usually a hundred or more people and kind of the case is laid out and they answer questions on paper and there's no, they don't get to see any live anything. Those are okay if you want to try to get a feel for maybe the case value, but I don't find them particularly useful. I've only done that once. Didn't go back to that. The remote mocks are very useful. I don't think they're as good as live mocks and I think people would agree to that in general, but they're efficient. You know, you'd take in they're efficient. And you know, the, even the live mocks are partially remote. And for people that have not done a mock trial, there's great vendors like Cogent that they do a really good job of looking at the population of the county where the case is and matching up all the demographics that you're likely to see on the jury. So during the mock trial, you're going to get about the same demographics that you will get if you get into court and try the case, which is obviously very important to the process. And for the live mocks, typically they will get like 36 people because they want to have ultimately about three panels. And you actually present cases there. If it's a one-day mock, you usually will do a clopening, which is a closing and opening at the same time. So you do your arguing up front. And then it's really important, I think, to show clips of the parties and to present evidence so that they get a feel for whether they like the parties and whether they're credible, because that's always a big deal in the mocks. The questions that follow the witnesses allow the lawyers to see how their jurors are reacting to the witness and how it impacts their feelings about the case. So you can learn a ton by doing a mock trial. If you're doing clopening style presentations, do you usually play the defense? Do you usually play the plaintiff? How do you manage that in order to make sure that you have, because you're looking for a balanced presentation, I presume. That's a great question. And I'll start this way. Our mutual friend, Rich Schoenberger, years ago, I was, I think it might've been one of my early mocks because for the last 10 years, I've done a lot of those. Before that, I really didn't do very many of them. And like you said, some people don't even believe in them. They're like, they're not going to tell me anything. I think they're really great. And a lot of that has to do with who's organizing the mock for you. But who we play depends on some client input. A lot of times my clients will say, well, we want you to be the defense lawyer. I like doing that because then you're preparing, it's doing a dress rehearsal. So you do your closing for the mock and that's going to change over time because typically you're doing the mock, you know, at least six months before trial. That's the ideal time to do it because enough evidence has been generated, enough depositions have been taken that it can be meaningful and the the people who are the mock jurors will get information that tells them about the case. 
If you do it earlier, you don't really have all that. If you do it later, you're kind of missing the window to settle the case. And this is typically they're done to get an evaluation and also to test your themes and to see what's well-received and what's not well-received. Back to Rich, though, I was going to mention that when I did my, one of the early ones, he said, good luck losing your mock trial. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, the only way you learn from a mock trial is to lose it because then you see how bad the damages can be, what arguments you realize, what doesn't work. So that sounds not for those of us that compete and want to win everything. That's a little bit counterintuitive for a mock trial. What I remember watching some mock trials when I was a young lawyer and when you are in the business that we're in, people tend to be pretty competitive. And so watching two greats, you know, like Cynthia or Bill line up against each other in a mock trial and having our jury consultant explain to them, it's not about who wins here. It's about who puts on the case. Mm-hmm. And they intuitively understood that, but there is that competitive spirit. And how do you tamp that down to make sure that you're doing a presentation that doesn't alter the outcome? Two points there. One, I want to make sure to remember to tell you this because I think you'll enjoy it. I had a fascinating fentanyl death case. It was in Truckee. Yes. And I might've mentioned this to you before, because we did a mock and it was at Lake Tahoe, which was great. To your point about who plays what, I was looking around for a plaintiff's lawyer to get involved. And I asked, and I'm not going to say which firm it is, but I asked one of the firms in San Francisco if they would like to throw a young partner or an associate at the case. So the San Francisco firm, and I respect it, they said, you know, that looks like we're kind of in bed with you and we don't want to do that. That's a bad luck. And I said, okay. And I was talking to Roger Dreyer, who's a Sacramento plaintiff's lawyer that I think a lot of us have heard of. He goes, can my daughter do that? And I go, well, what do you mean? She goes, he said, well, Natalie, who's his daughter, who's a newer lawyer, wanted to get some trial experience. And I go, that'd be great. Love to have her involved. She was an ass kicker in this case. I could not believe what a great job she did. And I'm saying that almost sheepishly because she whipped us in that case. And just as an example of that, it was a two-day mock, and there were three panels, and she just did a fantastic job of tearing us up. And it was a death case where there's really cute young kids that were the survivors of this cleaning woman who was exposed to fentanyl when she was cleaning up the house of a guy that had OD'd. So it was a really trippy case. And she came in, and she learned it, you know, in a few days, basically, and came in and presented. And we talked about what the ask should be because the value is really hard to pin down on that case. I said, you know, that's whatever you want for, you know, do what your dad does and, you know, shoot for the stars. So we had evaluated that case, I think five to $7 million or something like that. And she asked for $20 million. She did a great job. If I haven't said that yet, the first one we're doing the polling, because usually they take individual surveys about what the result should be. So that's like without any deliberating, that's just thinking in your head. And then they take those results. They put people into different rooms then they have jurors and then they do the deliberating in a jury thing. So it's not an individual result. It's the jury's result. So the first one came back at, I think like 5.5. I was like, oh, I nailed it. And the second one came back at, I think like $11 million. And the third one came back at $20 million. I was like, huh, I wonder what they would have given Natalie if she asked for $35 million because it was one of those learning experiences about what they thought about the case. Well, when you, when you have parents like hers, you might've learned a few things around the dinner table. Yeah. Yeah. Carol's a great defense lawyer too. And it was a great experience for her too. And really an effective way, because if a defense lawyer is playing the part of a plaintiff's lawyer, some people can, I think, do that effectively. 
you know, that's not your usual spots. So it was very helpful to have somebody like that engaged in the uh, process. When you are doing these evaluations, are you looking for thematic pieces, for valuation pieces, for liability picture? Is there anything specific or is it more global in terms of what you're trying to figure out? It's all of those. I find the reaction that the jurors have to the witnesses to me is probably the most crucial. I mean, as a defense lawyer, when a case comes in, we look at three things for value, or at least to start talking about value. One is the lawyer. Like if you have the case, it's got more value than if somebody who doesn't do what you do has the case. That really is like the number one factor is who's the plaintiff's lawyer. Number two is what county are you in, right? Because we all know, especially the Bay Area is like a, it's like microclimates, right? I mean, if it's funny because I live in Danville at the base of Mount Diablo, and that's about as conservative as you're going to get. Santa Clara, San Mateo, Dan, uh, Contra Costa. They're the best defense counties in the Bay Area. My office is in Pleasanton, which is in Alameda. So I go from, you know, if you're a defense lawyer, heaven to hell almost, <laughs> just on my 15-minute drive to work. And the next most important thing is the plaintiff, right? And you never really get a feel for the plaintiff, although with social media, you can start getting a feel for him or her. But the best interacting with the plaintiff in deposition and that's why the playing some video of the parties is so important. Because at the mock, after the plaintiff testifies, then there's a pause and they pull the mock jurors. The way they do it now, it's really incredibly great tech. They have a clicker and you can just answer, did you like her? Was she credible? How did it affect you? And they have very specific questions. That's what I love about Cogent's very particular. They don't do generic questions like, you know, other national Cherry consultants do. They're particular to the case. And so then you're testing your themes, right? And you learn, I think the best part of the mock for me typically are because you go through the evidence and argument. And then after they put the panels into deliberation rooms, then you can watch them. And that's what I was going to say about the remote versions. You can bounce from room to room just by hitting a button on your computer. And what they talk about, it's pretty entertaining, a little scary but also usually really informative about what didn't sell or why didn't they ask this or why aren't they emphasizing that or those kind of things that you can take away from. Does the carrier usually attend? They should, for sure. The one that I did in San Diego, the carrier's out of Chicago. So he attended, but there wasn't a ton of interaction. It's mostly just observing. Others, ironically, there was one at Tahoe, the carrier came out and (laughs) spent some time in person and They're doing a lot of things. They're looking at the lawyer, like, is this guy any good? Or is this young lady, is this the right person for the case who's doing the mock? So there's a little, you do have to be on good behavior and you want to present the best case you can, which gets back to the competitive part. Like you want to win the mock, even though you're supposed to lose it if you're on the defense side. And that makes it interesting in terms of nuance within nuance if you have a watcher watching the event. Exactly. Interesting. Do you like box? Do you use them very much? We love them. And we have a different approach. And we've worked with the same fellow for quite some time now. He does remote ones, and he has done them remote for a long time. And we tend to use what I'd describe as a peel-the-onion approach. So less clopening and more the jury consultant himself is going through and starting with kind of big-picture stuff. Does anyone here have any feelings about cyclists? So you'll start getting a sense of things, and you just hone further and further down. And we find that these are useful because the cost is lower. We will do them 
at the beginning of a case so that it helps us understand what a jury might want to know. That can help us guide on discovery. So we have a case where a guy got electrocuted and one of the questions was, was he wearing a hard hat? Like he received 12,500 volts, enough to kill somebody in the electric chair. And you're wondering if he's wearing a hard hat. Okay, well, we'll get the answer for you. So we start learning things that we're going to have to overcome that we didn't even think might be an issue. We like doing them at the beginning. We like doing a second one at the same phase that you're at. And then we usually have time for one when all the expert testimony has come to fruition. That then helps us kind of refine things to really put on the show. That's comprehensive, that's for sure. But it's a different, we're not doing three panels in person. Some of it is, is a cost perspective. Sure. I started asking you if the carrier was there, and I, I feel that might lead us down a useful path in terms of how you work with the carrier, how you work with plaintiff's lawyers in terms of gathering the information you need to be able to either convince the carrier that this one should be resolved and it should be resolved in this range versus trying the case. Is that enough of a launching pad for us to have a discussion on this piece? Absolutely. Yeah. My practice probably is two-thirds insurance-driven and a third private and that's kind of evolved over time, but it's the same approach regardless. And the best way I can explain it is that claims representatives are on a diary system and it's important to keep them out of trouble by giving them information before their diary comes up. So the way we communicate with the carriers is on a monthly basis. We have a rolling calendar of when a status report is due on a particular case and what we're trying to do in our reports is say, okay, here's what's happened in the last 30 days. Here's how it has affected either the liability or damages picture. Here's what's coming up next. And we suggest that you get this expert and that expert. So we're communicating on that kind of a regular basis, hopefully substantively, not always though, but it's amazing how much trouble you get in if you miss a status report. And two things I learned about you in terms of doing your homework is you are religious on emails and email responses, that that's one of your hallmarks, and that you are also religious in terms of getting your reports out every 30 days. The carriers love you in terms of your status reports. that fair? I would say that Tanya Morales has propped me up a little bit more than I deserve to be. She's my legal assistant slash boss, but I think that's really crucial. And it's one of those really simple things. As a defense lawyer, it's like, you shouldn't miss a status report. There's no reason to. You don't have to do them all on the same day. Spread them out, you know, get them done. And I think it is, responsiveness is crucial to client satisfaction. I mean, sometimes more crucial than results, as stupid as that sounds. There's a lot of things about the defense practice that would not be appealing to most people. And one of them is that some form is more important than substance. That is that, you know, as long as you're doing a status report, it's not that important what it says, which sounds really not like that shouldn't be that way. But that's kind of the, the way the industry is to some degree. So I hope I'm not slandering the entire industry, but that is a critical part of being a defense lawyer is communicating with your client, hopefully substantively versus, you know, just getting a piece of paper out. Tune in next week when we put up part two of our interview with Chris Beeman and we learn more about the right to farm. Thank you for listening today. Like what you heard? Share us with a colleague and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. To all of you doing justice out there, happy hunting.